you happen to be in the neighborhood in Bellevue of <laughs> the original Amazon house. Did you happen to notice if the historic mailbox was still on the corner? You know something about Amazon that I don't because I don't know why there's a historic mailbox. Yeah, okay, this is, this what, is what's so going on? This is Todd's favorite thing. There used to be this oversized mailbox on the corner, like right at the curb, because the guy who was renting that house back in the mid 90s needed all that extra space for all the book catalogs <laughs> that he was receiving. <laughs> It's kind of like the Jaws reference, but for Amazon, I'm going to need a bigger mailbox. <laughs> Hello and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we get to talk about some of the most interesting items in the news and some of the most interesting companies we get to cover our guest on the show this week is Ben Gilbert. He is a managing director at Pioneer Square Labs and the co-host of the podcast Acquired with his co-host, David Rosenthal. Ben, it is great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. You are right. What happens here is important everywhere. And uh, I just love the work that you guys put into this ecosystem. Thanks, Ben. Well, we wanted to have you on in part because you and David just published this week what I would have to say is an epic episode <laughs> of your podcast acquired about really one of the most epic stories that we get to cover and one of the most significant companies in the Seattle region and frankly in the world, Amazon, little internet retailer. Not sure if you heard of it before. Books, music, and more. <laughs> yes, exactly. Earth's biggest bookstore, although Barnes and Noble would dispute that back <laughs> in the day. Ben, four and a half hours on Amazon. This was a commitment. And I know both you and David spent a about two months researching this one. Yep. Why was it so important for you at this point in Amazon's evolution to do this deep dive on the company? I, I would try and come up with some reason why now is the time. But I actually think that it's more driven by, frankly, David and I having done 250 episodes and not feeling like we had done Amazon justice. We have mentioned fragments in all these other stories of Amazon and we sort of assumed because Amazon is so in the zeitgeist here in Seattle that everyone sort of already knows everything about this company. And as we started talking with some friends, especially ones in the Bay Area, we realized it's not a very well understood company everywhere. People know DoorDesks, people know, you know, maybe they know two pizza teams, but there's a lot of intricacies about the company where unless you've read, you know, both of Brad Stone's book and you watch the PBS Frontline documentary and you have 10 friends that work there, there's just no way you're going to sort of get about the company. So I would say it was less of a timing thing, uh, although now is a very interesting time and more of a somehow with Every rock that's been overturned, I think this company is still misunderstood. You said something at the very end of the discussion with David about Amazon that really struck me. And it struck me because I, I think there's a lot of truth in it. And not to spoil the end of your podcast, but I think it's a good jumping Go for off it. point for us. You said Amazon philosophically is a straight line. Strategically, is a squiggly line and tactically is a random set of dots that's powered by this fact-finding algorithm. I think those three bullets might explain Amazon and what it does as well as anything I've ever heard. Tell us what you meant by that. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, because that totally came to me on the spot. It's one of those, if you talk for four and a half hours, you're bound to have one super, super high-value sentence. We had spent the whole episode talking about this idea that Amazon tried lots of things that it kept shutting down. I mean, you think about auctions against eBay totally failed, pivoting to Z shops totally failed, but eventually they had enough data from doing both of those to come up with third-party sellers, which accounted for 57% of sales on Amazon.com were by people that weren't Amazon. I mean, they, they love sort of bragging about this. It's a hugely important pillar of the business, but they wouldn't have gotten to it without you know, trying these other businesses and finding their way to it. I think the same can be said, you know, I, I know these are parallel efforts, but their consumer electronics massive failure with the Fire Phone followed just a couple weeks later by this unbelievable success of, uh, of Alexa. So those things, it's not like a one leads to another, but it is illustrative of they're really throwing a lot of stuff against the wall to kind of see what sticks and trying to learn as fast as they can. So with those three sort of lines, I think philosophically a straight line, they're customer obsessed. And and I do believe, you know, there's some things that are sort of corporate lip service and kind of mumbo jumbo. I do think that's one of these things where every big decision the company has ever made has been guided by that first. Jeff Bezos famously observed that in the extreme long run, there is perfect alignment between customers' interests and shareholders' interests. If you do the right thing for the customer every time, you should build a lot of enterprise value. But that's not a implementation plan. That is a, a high-level goal. So how do you say we're uh, customer-obsessed and turn that into a product roadmap? You can't. And so you need to sort of squiggle your way to it. And, and the way that they do that is by you know, zooming around the maze, hitting a wall, backing up, turning left when they turned right before and trying that door. What, is, what do they call it? A two-door, uh, or is it a one-door or a two-door opportunity, right? It's a, a one-way door, something that you can't back out of, or a two-way door. And they put a lot more weight into the one-way doors because they're stuck if they go through them. That's another great Bezosism. In my mind, it's a spiritual corollary to the regret minimization framework where, you know, Jeff always believes you should make every decision based on the idea of what will you regret the least when you're 80? Well, there's another one that's how do you make decisions? Well, decide if it's a, a one-way door where you can't walk back through it or a two-way door where you easily can. And in organizational design, in order to move fast, if you identify something as a two-way door, then you should go through it as fast as possible to see what's on the other side and learn. So Ben, so much of the story here is about Jeff Bezos as an entrepreneur. You even say it in the early parts of the podcast where you're saying we're telling the story of Amazon, but it's really telling the story of Jeff Bezos. After doing all this research, there's so much you can say about Bezos as an entrepreneur, but was there something that has emerged that has surprised you about him as you, you know, you're an investor, venture capitalist in your day job, so you see a lot of entrepreneurs come through your your doors. Is there something that stood out that maybe might surprise listeners? I think a thing that I previously did not understand about the Amazon founding story until doing the research was what an insane moment in time 1994 was. Jeff read a research report that said that the internet was growing 2300x. So that's 230,000% per year, just in terms of traffic that is flowing over the internet. I don't know of something in our world today that is growing at that pace. And so I think a special thing about Jeff versus everyone else who 
had the opportunity to see that stat and take action is that he did. This was 1993 was, I think, when he read the report. 1994 is when he started Amazon. The dot-com mania was 97 to 99, or really 2000. And so this wasn't like jumping on the bandwagon because, hey, these internet things are getting a lot of eyeballs, and so therefore, you know, I should uh, try and raise venture capital and do it too. This was like a first principles understanding of, okay, if it is actually true that this unbelievable growth in traffic has happened on this thing that was A, born of academia, and B, illegal until merely months ago to engage in commerce on. I don't think people remember that. The, it was, the internet was non-commercial until 93, something like that. So there's this moment in time where it's growing unbelievably fast, and now you can use it for business. He just jumped on that so early. And then, of course, there's all the other path-dependent, you know, required elements to the story, too, with his maniacal focus, you know, famously almost naming the business Relentless and, and recruiting all these incredible people around them and uh, the, the very contrarian leadership styles that would eventually develop, you know, exclusively communicating through APIs within the company to minimize the amount that you actually need to talk to your coworkers so that we can scale faster. I mean, there's just crazy crazy things that he put in place. But to me, the necessary precondition to it all is, A, exist in a very unique moment. And I, I often look around, I mean, part of my job as a venture capitalist at, at Pioneer Square Labs and, and our fund PSL Ventures is to look around and figure out what is that right now? You know, I, I don't think there's another internet happening around us, something of that scale, eventual TAM um, and current growth rate. There, there are baby internets happening all over the place, these sort of mini waves. But Jeff saw that and acted, and that that is special. Well, you're wrong, Ben, because the metaverse, <laughs> of course, is is that capital M or no? <laughs> um, but uh, one thing that you're hitting on there that's really interesting is that ability to see this happening and then act on it. And both you and David in the podcast talk about it at length. You know, would you have as venture capitalists? been around the right people? Would you have actually jumped on the opportunity? And you talk about a lot of your own FOMO of, you know, fear of missing out <laughs> on on this era. But even if you were in this era, and I was, I graduated in 1994, and I had zero idea this was going on. I was so far removed from this. You still would have maybe missed it as a venture capitalist, even looking at it at this time. And a lot of people did. Do you remember when uh, investment banking analysts, there, there were people who were on the internet desk or venture capitalists who were paying attention to software? Oh, and now we're also paying attention to internet. Can you imagine how funny that is today if like my, my PSL title was like, oh, I'm into sectors like internet? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other funny thing about that growth, just one little side story, and maybe you can share this, Ben, because I had actually not heard this was Bezos actually misread the report initially yeah. in 93. Can you tell tell us what he actually read at first? So I think it was that he was off by two orders of magnitude, like I almost just was when I was quoting it back, and thought it was growing at 2,300%, not 230,000%. And still that was enough for him to jump in. I mean, <laughs> I, and, and I think that's right. Like if you see something that grows what would that be, 23x year over year? Like, that's insane. People come with us, you know, with pitch decks and saying the, the compound annual growth rate for this industry is 100%. It's doubling year over year. That's like, whoa, a whole industry that's doubling year over year? That's, that's impressive. Like, that's an emergent market. 
and <laughs> it just doesn't compare. You can tell that John's a big fan of the metaverse, Ben, <laughs> through that comment earlier. Yes. But as you were debating this, you know, and saying on your podcast that in your experience as investors, you really haven't run across anything like this. I was trying to prove you wrong in my head, and I couldn't. And David makes the point later on in your show that a lot of the things that we think are new tidal waves are really just, to mix metaphors, aftershocks of the internet itself. And the metaverse is a good example uh, in many ways, even though you have this specialized hardware that's making it happen, a lot of what enables it is the connectivity and the ability to access services through VR headsets or AR headsets. I agree with you. I'm thinking maybe quantum computing or fusion energy. That That's sort of where my brain goes. Space in travel. Or the, you get the, into illegal things like the drug trade. Those probably grow at that rate. <laughs> <laughs> Whole other business. Yeah. Well, it's also it also has to have a network effect to grow at that rate because there's no way if you have a a, a pipe that's just exists in in two dimensions, the bandwidth of that pipe is only so big. So if I'm jamming stuff in, going left to right, at some point it it, it can't facilitate me jamming anymore in. But if if the pipe just keeps connecting to more and more and more nodes, and I'm measuring total traffic you can see how that can scale in many more dimensions than just jam more in the pipe. And so I, I, I think uh, it, it sort of has to be on a network in order to see that sort of growth rate. There was also a really pivotal moment where there was a meeting between Amazon and eBay. And eBay came out of that meeting and Meg Whitman made a very specific declaration internally to her executives on how to approach the growth of eBay. And Jeff Bezos had a completely different idea. And it was such a point of divergence in the industry and in Amazon's history. Ben, you called this out. Can you explain that to folks? Because I thought that was another key moment in the evolution and in the story of the company. So if I'm, you know, pitching a business to one of my partners and, and we start these businesses in the studio all the time, so we're constantly pitching each other, and I pitch them on something where we're going to have to be really asset heavy, we're going to need warehouses, and we're going to need to tie up a lot of our working capital in inventory, and we might be wrong on the sort of inventory we should stock, so we might have to write some of that off at some point, versus a super capital light business where we just operate a website and other people sell stuff and they take the inventory risk and they just use our payment processor and, and pay us to list on the website. The latter is going to get a lot more people excited in the room than the former. And yet in the long run, that first one was Amazon and the second one was eBay. And I don't know how many people are spending too high of a percent of their paycheck on eBay these days, but there's a lot more on Amazon. Well, I think the comment from Meg Whitman, which you retold on the podcast, was something along the lines to summarize that uh, when she was talking to her executive team, warehouses aren't cool. <laughs> High margin internet businesses are cool. Well, that, that was from the that was the from the social network as well, too. I think they may have been <laughs> conflating different historical quotes there. <laughs> and all this stuff, ultimately, it's like there were very few people in the actual room and no one was writing down exactly what was said. But yeah, that's definitely the gist. It speaks to Jeff Bezos's long-term vision. And I think it's become a cliche to some extent to think about his quotes about being willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. And yet here you see it. And here you see it manifest in this company that was created out of this massive infrastructure that took years and years to build in terms of their warehouses. And they learned from Walmart as well in terms of the ability to 
go out there and to do distribution for themselves. And then they learned, wait, as Jeff Wilkie pointed out, no, we're doing fulfillment, not just distribution. We're fulfilling individual customer orders. It was really good. And and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Ben, was because a lot of the things that both you and David talked about, it crystallized things for me, things that had just sort of been floating around. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that's right. And that's how it fits. So I, I highly recommend the podcast. It's acquired. It's a good investment of four and a half hours. Let me <laughs> tell you that. Now, there were some specific things that you brought up toward the end, Ben that related to the Seattle startup ecosystem, which I know is near and dear to the hearts of both you and John. So we're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. We're talking with Ben Gilbert this week. He is with Pioneer Square Labs, and he is the co-host of the podcast Acquired. Ben, I'm quoting you probably more than you're ever going to be quoted, <laughs> so forgive me. But again, I spent four and a half hours on this thing. You said toward the end, the biggest impediment for the Seattle startup ecosystem was the fact that Amazon facilitated entrepreneurship over and over again for people of all stages of their career with all levels of ambition. John, do you think, I want to get to Ben in a second, but I want to take, I want your take on this, John. Do you think Amazon has been good or bad net net for startups? Oh, I don't think you can say good or bad. I do agree <laughs> with Ben's quote there. It has been an impediment. And what I've said, and I've said it often on this podcast, the thing that has amazed me about Amazon is their ability to stay innovative and entrepreneurial, even as they cross the 100,000 employee mark, the 500,000 employee mark, the million employee mark. They've been able to really retain that. And as a result, and I think this gets to Ben's point, was they were able to retain and still even recruit very entrepreneurial people into the organization, which as a result, maybe they didn't go to new startups that would have created new companies in our backyard. And so I do think that happened to a degree. I'm curious. I mean, I have a question for Ben that kind of piggybacks on that and a little a little bit. In the episode, you mentioned Joy Covey, who is the CFO at Amazon, very early leader who was very much instrumental in the company's success. In 2013, she she wrote a letter talking about Amazon in terms of how they were still kind of in the early stages of growth and kind of like the very early innings in 2013. And she was right. And I guess I would like to fast forward and, and we should say, you know, Joy unfortunately passed away tragically in a in a bicycle accident and was a huge loss for Amazon and the larger technology community. But my question is there, kind of fast forwarding to today. If you were looking at Amazon, where are they? And now we have this transition with new leadership coming in with Andy Jassy at the helm. Are they still an inning one, which they probably were in 2013? Or are they getting into their twilight years? Or is it day two, <laughs> God forbid? I think it is day two for Amazon. I think it is safe to say that on a few different vectors. 
one of which is actually looking back on the words of Jeff himself in, I'm trying to remember what year's shareholder letter this was. <sighs> Got to be the early 2000s. But he says, it's only day one for the internet. We're still in single digit penetration in terms of the amount of total commerce that happens on the internet. Analysts believe that one day we could reach 15%. Well, guess what happened during the pandemic? We went up to like 18% and it's back down to 15% now. So this, this notion of like, where do people think that e-commerce penetration will land as a percentage of total commerce, we're there. And to be honest, other than maybe a house and a car, I don't know how I could spend more money on the internet. And frankly, most of it on Amazon. Uh, I was like, okay, what do I actually buy? I mean, I use Amazon Fresh to get my groceries. I order basically everything I need on Amazon's retail site. I spend a lot of money at Starbucks. I will tell you that much. Like there's, there's one walking distance from my house. So maybe there's some way I could eventually shift my food and beverage spend onto, onto Amazon. But if you think about household spend and you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics on this, number one is spending on housing. So I'm not paying you know, rent or mortgage on Amazon. So maybe that's some addressable dollars for them at some point. Two is auto. And I, I bought a used car two years ago. And so that didn't go through Amazon. And then three is food. Amazon's made a few runs at restaurants over the years, which hasn't worked out. I end up using DoorDash or Uber Eats much more often than anything that I ever tried on Amazon, which I only think I ever used Amazon local or Amazon restaurants maybe once. So that's an area they could continue to expand in. But I'm, I say all this just to lay it out. I think e-commerce penetration, that has entered day two. And I think at least for my spend and for lots of people, I think they already spend as much as they possibly could on Amazon. So that's sort of the the business side. Uh, on the leadership side, I think transitioning to Andy Jassy is a moment of day two. I don't think that's necessarily bad for the company. I think you look at Steve Jobs to Tim Cook, or you look at Satya Nadella's leadership at Microsoft now, like day two CEOs can build 10 to 100x the amount of enterprise value as day one founder CEOs can, if it's the, the right fit and the right market and the right culture. But I think it's, uh, it feels intellectually dishonest to say that it's still day one. This is really interesting, Ben. I, I think the follow-up question I have just on the first component of your analysis there on basically the commerce component hitting the maybe the top of where they're they're going. I mean, this is why you do see Amazon expanding into so many other industries, whether it's advertising, healthcare, that's a big spend for, yep. right, for right. Americans. Great and you point. see them going in a big way into healthcare. You know, we've talked on the podcast in the in the past about what's the next pillar business for Amazon. As you look at it, and after doing all this analysis and research, where do you see that playing out? Uh, it's interesting. I think healthcare could be that next sort of trillion or multi-trillion dollar market cap pillar for them. I will say, like, as I as I reflect back on the day two comment, there are other markers too. I'm seeing an increased number of entrepreneurs leaving Amazon to start companies. I, I think someone should compile the data on this to see if it's actually increasing. But anecdotally, I definitely have. I mean, and, and we look at companies we've started or invested in, like Shipium um, or Boundless, great, great ex-Amazon people. And I love that they bring that culture of Amazon. I think it's net positive for the startup ecosystem that that sort of comes out. Another way that I think it's day two at Amazon is they're leaning into value capture a little bit harder on the AWS side than they ever did 
on the retail side. They've always been about- What, what do you mean by value capture? What does that mean? So we just recorded our AWS episode, which will be out in a couple of weeks to follow up with this one. And along the way, I, I really realized that Amazon has become the thing that they were fighting against. When they were first starting AWS and they were saying, you can use S3 and you can use EC2 and these things are purely available on demand and it's the future and it's in our data centers, so you don't have to put it in yours. And you know we're not going to make a lot of margin on it and it, it uses all open source stuff. Well, a lot of the more recent Amazon offerings are things where they make more margin. They're proprietary. You look at some of their database offerings, they're actually generating a lot more margin than they were when they first started. And it's because there's a lot more lock-in. If you ship terabytes and terabytes or gigabytes or exabytes of your data onto Amazon, you're kind of stuck there. And they're finding ways to monetize at a higher level than they used to based on the fact that they're sort of locking a lot of people in, which is the thing they were fighting against with Oracle and IBM. And I just think if you look at um, AWS's operating margins, when they first broke it out in 2015, were somewhere around 19%. They've been floating in the 30% range recently. They're just finding ways to actually run a much more profitable business and squeeze customers a little bit more than they were in the early days. And so I'm not saying that they shouldn't do that, but I'm saying it is a mark of a day two company that's starting to lean into, hey, let's let's actually realize some profits out of this thing. And it's not just about grow, grow, grow and reinvest everything and give customers as much of the surplus as we can. I know that one of your frequent citations was Brad Stone, the author of The Everything Store and Amazon Unbound. And Brad is an editor at Bloomberg News, and he recently opined on this very topic about what is the fourth pillar at Amazon, to, to your question, John. And his point was healthcare and robotics, potentially. And so you can see that in both of their acquisitions of Roomba and also of One Medical that they're proposing to make just recently. And that actually is an interesting question when, as it relates to day two. Because back in the day, Ben, I don't know that you would have seen Amazon pursuing a new pillar with an acquisition necessarily, maybe smaller acquisitions, but like Roomba and One Medical, I mean, these are huge businesses that they're bringing in that could form giant chunks of these pillars. And a smaller, innovative company might want to build something like that from the ground up. Am, am I on the right track there? I don't know. So here's the thing that I want to decouple is that like day two means not innovative. I think it's day two because they're open to the idea of making money and reaping some of the, the value from everything that they've created out in the world. People who are willing to value them at a trillion and a half dollars are expecting that they do that at some point. I mean, you, all businesses are eventually valued on the discounted sum of their future cash flows. So we got to expect that there's future cash flows coming at some point. Otherwise, we really shouldn't be investing. And so I think it becoming a day two company does mean some of the things that you're saying where maybe they'll slow down a little bit. Maybe it'll be harder to make decisions. Maybe they'll be entering businesses that they otherwise wouldn't have entered if they felt like, you know, there was infinite running room in the markets they were already in. But again, I don't know that it's necessarily bad. It's just sort of natural and was always sort of part of the plan to harvest at some point. Since we're talking about acquisitions here, Ben, and your show is called Acquired, <laughs> I need to ask you, looking at the history of Amazon, do you have a favorite acquisition they made or the best acquisition Amazon made that you think positioned them for success? Yes, absolutely. This one, I got a, a hat tip goes to uh, my co-host, David. 
for finding this uh, data, but $300 million was the price tag for Audible back in 2008. <laughs> Let's just do some, some back of the napkin math, because I know a lot of you are out there, especially if you're a podcast listener, you probably also use Audible. Audible has 40% market share of the audiobook market. The audiobook market is $5 billion. So call that $2 billion of revenue that it does a year. Again, they don't break this out, so back of the napkin. It's apparently growing at a 25% growth rate year over year, with a market size projected to reach $35 billion by 2030. So wow. am I open to buying a company for $300 million and then being able to generate $2 billion a year of, of revenue on it a decade later, a decade and a half later? Absolutely, especially when it is legitimately strategic to my core business. I'm not just buying a financial asset there. Like, I'm buying a thing that is incredibly intertwined to my core retail business. This is fascinating to me because I would not have said Audible. I have another one in mind, which I'll tell you in a second. As a reporter covering Amazon, there is no other company Amazon has acquired that I interact with that wants less to be associated with Amazon. These people, if you put... <laughs> Are you saying Audible is? Audible does not want to be known as an Amazon company. Remember Woot was that way too? Woot was. Were they? Yeah. Woot was like yeah. that too. If you put anywhere in the headline or the first paragraph or the second paragraph <laughs> of a story that they're an Amazon-owned company, you get an email from their PR people asking you to take it out. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Come on. Really? I just tell them to go away. I tell them to buzz off. <laughs> the buy button is right there on every single product detail page for every book. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but that they, they want they want to be an entity unto themselves. But more power to them. And to your point, Ben, it's certainly a viable business. I was going to say um, Kiva Systems. Uh, I thought that's where you're going. I don't know how to value that one. That's why it's hard. I, I think it's... Uh, I, I have a hard time understanding. You know, I need to f tour a fulfillment center to better understand how much efficiency there is in using the Kiva robots. Well, on the flip side, and you talk about Jungly, the acquisition of Jungly, and how all those folks kind of did. I thought it was interesting when you mentioned they acquired Jungly and they moved them all to Seattle. No one likes Seattle, so they all went <laughs> back to the Bay Area, which was which was interesting. Uh, but I was going to ask, like, what what's the worst acquisition? I mean, are they experiment and fail a lot. So, good question. I mean, they don't have a Nokia moment that I can think of off the top of my head. Not in the M and A world, certainly in the Fire Phone like, world. Yeah, they literally had a Nokia moment with the first party product. <laughs> That's true just through their own internal development. But it is part of the story is the number of failures, and you touched on that. This is a company that has failed more than it succeeded, and I think people forget that. Yeah. I would bet the Zappos acquisition has been fine, hmm. but, I mean, they yeah. paid, what, $1.3 for that? That was a big price tag. Let me look up exactly what the... $1.2 And... I don't think Zappos has become, you know, a, a top 10, top 20 online retailer. I think that it's probably done great since they bought them. But I'm not sure what the expectation was that at that point in time, uh, that, that would have been 2009. So cash was a lot more precious to them than it is now to spend $1.2 billion of your precious cash buying that company. I think it was defensive. I think they were afraid of losing in shoes, which was an important category, and they couldn't let anybody else have it. Or, or to let them grow as an independent company. 
Yeah, and Zappos had such a unique and interesting culture as well that maybe they felt there was a chance there could have been growth into other sectors just based on their unusual approach to building a business. We had a great episode earlier this year with Kirsten Grind, who co-authored a book about Tony Shea and talked about the behind the scenes with Amazon a little bit. So I recommend that to anybody who's interested in that topic. But yeah, to to your point, John, I was going to say, I, it seemed like maybe it was a cultural thing. And then that kind of went off the rails. Obviously, lots of good people at Zappos, but I, it, it went in such a direction that I don't think it could really be a model for Amazon culturally necessarily. Mm. But Ben, to your point, on the defensive part, around that same time, they also bought Quidzy, yeah. uh, diapers.com, which was also very, very defensive and frequently cited in the antitrust discussions about Amazon. And so I wonder if there was sort of a mentality at that point or something going on where these more defensive acquisitions were something that they were pursuing more aggressively. I mean, Facebook certainly had that same strategy for a long time too, which is a, a very effective business strategy if it is legal. It's amazing how these things take decades to answer that question. But to the extent that you're allowed to buy another company so that it can't get big and challenge you, that is a great strategy. But I think we're still working out uh, if, if we're going to let that happen in this country or not. One other I'll throw out, just just to say, I don't think Whole Foods has been a screaming success. I wouldn't call it a oh. failure by any means, but $13 billion for, I'm going to guess Whole Foods has grown a little bit as a business. So, you know, maybe a good invest, like a financial investment where it's compounding at some nice rate and they're able to get a little bit more profitable. But the dream with Whole Foods would have been for Amazon to make a material dent in grocery as a category. Like if you go look at the top grocery sellers in the world, Walmart is by far and away number one. And then I think you've got the Safeways of the world and Albertsons and Kroger. Um, but I don't think Amazon is like a top five grocer. And that would have been an enormous market for them. They've made all these different runs at it with Go and Fresh and having Whole Foods. And Whole Foods has some nice synergies. I, I do most of my uh, Amazon returns at Whole Foods, but that's not why you spend $13 billion. All right, Ben, I have one more big question for you, and it relates to a recent bike ride that you took. Oh, yeah. We're going to ask about that. Coming up next, you're listening to GeekWire. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest this week is Ben Gilbert of Pioneer Square Labs and co-host of the Acquired Podcast. Ben, you mentioned on your recent podcast episode about Amazon that you rode your bike. You happened to be in the neighborhood in Bellevue of the, <laughs> the house, the, the original Amazon house, and you rode your bike by. So my question is, did you happen to notice if the historic mailbox was still on the corner? You know something about Amazon that I don't, because I don't know why there's a historic mailbox. Okay, this is, this what, is what's so going on. Todd, this is Todd's favorite thing. This is Todd's favorite thing. <laughs> All right, and he likes it yeah. even better that he stumped you, Ben. 
<laughs> I, I also got to say, I felt really bad. Like, this is somebody's home. Well, I, and I, David I, pointed out, I mean, Todd and I are journalists. You know, that's fine. You can ride by somebody's house on a public street. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And, and to, the way that? I was justifying it is like, I'm, I'm not like, you know, publishing like a live feed of the video outside their house or anything like that. It was like, I wanted to like feel however it sort of felt to hang out in that neighborhood. And I know it's changed a lot and all that, but it, it, it felt like a way to ground the story for me. Well, I'll tell you the mailbox story and then I want to hear sort of what you felt. So there used to be this, until a few years ago, oversized mailbox on the corner, like right at the curb. And we've actually got a good picture of it. Oh, awesome. And the reason that there was that mailbox that was there was because, uh, as I like to tell the story, the guy who was renting that house back in the mid nineties needed all that extra space for all the book catalogs <laughs> that he was receiving. <laughs> Literally like they, they would get print catalogs of books. That's the story. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but is there some way so, to like petition the post office to give you more capacity if you're getting a bunch of mail? I, I have a hunch they probably just bought, you know, yeah, a, yeah. a bigger, bigger mailbox. I'm going to, it's kind of like the Jaws <laughs> reference, but for Amazon, I'm going to need a bigger mailbox. Uh, <laughs> Get the, big uh, fast. Get me a bigger the, mailbox. The, the thing was, as John said, I get these... I don't know what it is. Sometimes it's physical objects. I sort of get these weird obsessions. Like, I love this story. You know, it's just like I can embody the story of Amazon in this one mailbox. And it's a great anecdote. And so when the house sold a few years ago, I was like all over the real estate agent. Like, hey, man, you know, this this mailbox is really important. Make sure that the new owners, like I, I was telling this, I was writing the right, story about it. But I was like, hey, what are, what are they going to do with the mailbox? Todd, you we should have bought it. I, I think I scared the real estate agent because it disappeared. And I think they were worried about theft or something. Rightly so. Yeah. I mean, that might be valuable to some extent. At any rate, that's the story of the Amazon mailbox. Ben, did you did you feel the innovation just seeping through that neighborhood? <laughs> well, the Im importantly, no. Like that that kind of. I, I think um, I think yeah. that's actually the takeaway. Is you're like this is an ordinary neighborhood, and this is a a, a nice house in Bellevue, or, or this is a you know this is a middle class house in Bellevue, and I think that's the. That's sort of the magic of the story is that something so, so, so extraordinary came from something so ordinary. Yeah. And it's cool to think back to just this company may not have made it. You know, there are a lot of times in its history, it hit some walls. Yep. And it's- But for Joy Covey's debt financing, they wouldn't have made it. Yeah. And and a lot of uh, historical- hurdles they had to get over. But like, I like going to places like that too, just to put it in perspective of like, it just started as any other little company with someone that had an idea. And who knows? I'm sure, Ben, you're hopeful there are dozens of those little uh, garage startups starting all over the Seattle area right now as we speak. I'm optimistic. Just as a last parting thought here, Ben, is, is there one characteristic of Jeff Bezos as an entrepreneur or of Amazon as a company that other entrepreneurs, other startup leaders, other startups might not have naturally, but that you would really think would be good for them to study and, and adopt? This is going to sound almost like a trope at this point, but truly the customer obsession. I think people think they're interested in serving customers, but I do think a lot of people are doing startups because they want to start a successful startup. And so they spend a lot of time on the window dressing around a startup. And I think Jeff put every single ounce of attention and energy and, you know, 
people always say when he sort of sets his sights on you, it's sort of almost like the eye of Sauron. Uh, that that I think he's like that with customers. When when someone would say, "I want this," he would say, "Well, then we must 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 pay attention and do nothing else but figure out how to serve you." And as obvious as that is for all startups, I think people often say, "Well, is that part of our strategy?" or you know, can we afford to staff that headcount, or will that scale? And I just, I just don't think they cared in the early days. It's almost like it takes a magic trick of setting your own ego aside, of being selfless in your own self-interest, ultimately, <laughs> right? Yeah. And being able to say, okay, I'm going to take what's coming in and act on that. I would add to that, Ben, the, the long-term thinking, and I, I keep going back to that eBay anecdote where Meg Whitman was thinking short-term profits, making sure to maximize those margins, and Jeff Bezos was thinking decades down the road and the importance of having that infrastructure. And if you combine those two, the customer obsession and the long-term thinking, I think you've got the definitive characteristics of Amazon and things that companies and leaders might not naturally do. Yeah. Naturally is the key word there. The the only way to birth Amazon into the world and and to then continue to innovate the way they did for 20 plus years is to perform unnatural acts over and over and over again. Ben, this is great. And it's been fun watching the progression of Acquired. It's been kind of a vicarious thrill for us. I mean, you guys had an arena show earlier this oh, year. Man, that was surreal. That's one of those pinch me moments where you're like, this is a, I, I cannot believe this is happening. I do have to say thank you. You were an, uh, a guest in maybe our first 10 episodes way back in the day. So thank you for uh, eight. <laughs> yeah. Believing in us when uh, basically nobody listened. Oh, come on now. That's, I, no, seriously. I, I, we had less than a thousand people listening. Well, it is really cool to hear two people who are so into what they're discussing and, and the research really shows off. So thanks for sharing some of that with us here and uh, hope to have you on again soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Our podcast is produced by Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Be sure to subscribe to the GeekWire podcast in your favorite podcast app. You can check out the Acquired podcast at acquired.fm. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. Thanks for listening to GeekWire.